Welcome to Architecture Insights, a podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. My name is Di Snape and I'm here in the ARB's Purple Podcast booth with my co-host and our very own registrar, Tim Horton. Hi, Tim. Hi, Di. Welcome to Architecture Insights. In this next few episodes of Architecture Insights, we're going to hear from architects whose careers have benefited from an extraordinary gift. They've all been the lucky recipients of the very influential, but uh, not very well known, Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarship, which is Australia's richest annual bequest for architecture and is administered by us here at the Architects Registration Board. Tim, let's have a quick recap about Byra Hadley and the scholarships. Mm. So apart from being the man who left this incredible legacy for the benefit of future mm. generations of architects, what else was Byra Hadley? Do we know what kind of a man he was? Byra was an architect and educator. Uh, he lived in the inner west. Uh, the bequest comes from the proceeds of the sale of his house. Really? Uh, in itself a small gift which has grown into this enormous legacy that's lasted more than 65 years and benefited, what, more than 200 architects, graduates, students. An extraordinary legacy. And if we think for just a second about real estate prices in the 1950s and now... Yeah, if only he'd held it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I Hundreds guess the other, and thousands of beneficiaries. The other things we sometimes ask is who is the next buyer, you know, and what could that legacy possibly, uh, you know, make possible? Yeah. Speaking of what it makes possible, we've asked a diverse bunch of um, those 202 alumni, not all of them, to tell us about their Byra Hadley experience. And these are all very rich and interesting stories. And in this episode, we'll hear from Imogene Tudor, who is working with Sam Crawford Architects. And we asked um, series producer, curator Jan Ryan, herself a philanthropist, actually to speak with Imogene who won her scholarship in 2012 for a piece of research called Making Space for Architecture. Hi, Imogen. Hi. What was your Byra Hadley scholarship about? My scholarship research was looking into the methods and the culture around public architectural discourse. That sounds very dense. Yeah. <laughs> How do we talk about architecture to the public? Ah, now, now, you, now you're giving, you know, <laughs> letting me in on the inside of this. So why this topic? I feel like this is something that as a profession we do quite poorly and it comes out of a reasonably personal frustration with feeling misunderstood, um, mostly with my non-architectural friends and recognising a discrepancy between what I thought I did for a living and the way that I'm perceived of what I do for a living. Was it that your friends couldn't understand you? Potentially. Potentially. <laughs> I think what I came to understand is that the problem is more on the other side of the fence is that as a profession that we're not great at describing what we do in any great level of detail or in any way that seems relevant to the general public. But yet your business is in transferring ideas and information from the client, uh, you know, across to the builders and everything, the whole process of making a building. Was it that you didn't have the words to do that? I think so. And I think that as a practising architect, we spend most of our life in codified forms of communication. So drawing. Drawing is an abstraction. 
the way that you talk to builders, the way that you present information to clients is quite often relying on abstract methods of describing complex ideas. So as soon as you need to strip out overly specialised language or strip away the tools of drawing or image creation, Mm. I think that where we lack some confidence to clearly articulate our ideas. And I think that's partly due to a culture in our profession of trying to overcomplicate things. We, we, we love to sound very, very smart. Um, and sometimes we attempt to do that by using obscure or imprecise language. That's a little bit odd. Do you think you learn to speak like that? Absolutely. You're not born like that. No. Architecture school... Beats it out of you. Oh, spends five years or six years teaching us how to obscure meaning, in my personal (laughs) opinion, and how to, instead of... Look, it's all to do with status. Ah, yeah? Well, I, I think so. So everybody else says, you know, what a lovely pink kitchen. And we say, ah, oh, well, the tonal qualities and the the transient quality of the light in the space through the domestic culinary space of whatever. <laughs> it's we can't we 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 feel like we need to just look. I'm see um, you've lost me already. I don't know. <laughs> I would never have thought that was a kitchen. But when you said a pink kitchen, I was imagining a pink kitchen in my mind, of course, not Absolutely. necessarily the one you wanted me to. Exactly. To know. So I think what I'm interested in is how to communicate the complexity of ideas because architecture is complex. Mm. So you've got to simplify it or take people through be, stages. You have to be clear about it. So what is it about the pink kitchen? Is the fact that it's pink or is it that it makes you feel good while you're in there? Is it nostalgic? Does it remind you of your grandmother's kitchen? Is it a terrible kitchen? Is it a wonderful place to be? Like, who knows? So instead of obscuring it by talking about the transcendence of experience of light through the whatever, say... This place reminds me of my grandmother's kitchen, which to me is a genuine space of love and warmth. And as a kitchen, it inspires me to spend time here. Yeah. So you've got to learn to tell the story. Obviously, every every architect will tell a story differently. But you've got to learn to have confidence and trust in your own story and your own memories and your own time and all those things. Absolutely. And try to... As architects, we do have specialised knowledge about space. That's the whole point of, of of being an architect in a lot of ways. So how do you translate the very tangible, everyday experiences of life? Because we all live in the built environment. We have homes and kitchens and mm. we walk through the city streets um, to this specialised body of knowledge. And to me, it... It can be difficult to explain, to, to make that jump mm. between a very, very commonplace thing and a specialised body of knowledge and something that you feel is very, very important or valuable. It's really, really valuable because you're making our built environment. Absolutely. Making our lives, you know, making the set for our lives almost. So you set out then to um, talk to everybody you could. Yes. How did, that, how did you go about that? So I broadly broke up 
the subject into exhibitions, um, events in public space, which might be festivals, it might be pavilions, it might be a conference. And then thirdly, I was looking at media. So written communication, and I was also very interested in radio. Mm. And I picked out a number of people that I admired um, and who I felt to be leaders in this area. And, yeah, gave them a call and sat down and had a chat and asked them a whole lot of questions. And what were you asking them when you approached them? Were you looking for uh, the their experiences of storytelling or were you looking at their awareness of the uh, role they had as storytellers? How, how did you kind of get inside this? Because it's, it's not easy. No, it's not. So the first question that I would ask is, is this a problem? Do you see this as a problem, the way that we, that the profession communicates to the public? And resoundingly, the answer was Yes. The reasons varied, so talking to um, Pippo Chiora at the Maxi Museum in Rome, mm-hmm. his view on why it was problematic was very different to Alexandra Lang, who's a writer and a um, critic based in New York City. And this is another dimension to the, the question, I suppose that there are many facets to the question, so there can be many and multiple answers that are all all correct in different ways. Mm -hmm. So Alexandra, as a critic, was very interested in... The problem she identified is in connecting everyday experience at a personal and at a city level to bigger ideas. Pippo spoke a lot about aura, the aura of an object, Mm. and he suggested that architectural artefacts don't necessarily have aura, whereas art objects most often do. So what you're trying to communicate is an idea which the drawing is a representation of rather than a means to an end in itself. I can see where it's complicated. Yeah. Because in a way you want to make... uh, Do you want to make the architecture the aura? Yeah. And that makes it simpler? Potentially. Potentially. Bring it down from the pedestal. Absolutely. mm. And then the scale of ideas in architecture can vary greatly. So I saw a great exhibition in Rotterdam, which was looking at Playboy magazine, which is something familiar in the cultural context Mm. of our lives. Um. But they were looking at it through an architectural lens and how it defined a particular aesthetic about being masculine. So they were looking at the bachelor pad. They were looking at um, lounge spaces, domestic spaces that are masculine instead of traditionally feminine. So the artefact that we were looking at was Playboy magazines. The idea was domestic space, but then there are layers and layers of ideas, so masculinity and gender identity, um, branding, and then also the changing ideas through time. So it was looking at the Playboy magazines of the 1960s and 70s as a really um, iconic example of these male spaces with dark timber panelling and shag pile carpet, which was about this male sensuality that this magazine promoted. 
But this was all in the context of an architecture museum, yes. which is talking about the idea of space as well. So the, the idea of experiencing these things, which I think is what you're suggesting, it seems to have really um, great currency at the moment that we move away from knowing things and it, to experiencing things. I, I don't know whether there's a difference there, but the experience is really important. The response we have to um, going to fe- festivals and reading magazines and so on. It's happening in all disciplines. Uh, it's a way of demystifying powerful things, I think. Is this what's happening? Yes, I think so. Um, again, at a more fundamental level, architecture is about experience as well. So I think using bringing, architect, uh, bringing architecture into the city in a temporary nature. So if you talk about festivals and events, what we're talking about is temporary structures in the city in an architectural context. What that does is twofold. Firstly, it changes the rules of the game for architecture. So no no longer does a building have to conform to very rigorous planning controls, um, codes and restraints, durability, weatherproofness, all of those kind of things. It can be a lot more light and joyful, responsive, temporary and playful in the way it engages with the city. The second thing it does is it changes the rules of engagement for the city itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, I saw a particularly great um, temporary pavilion in New York, in PS1. At and the that, Museum of Modern Art. At the Museum of Modern Art. And the installation was this giant plywood structure sitting in the middle of a quite barren courtyard. It's a temporary pavilion that sits there for the summer months and they hold parties there. It's on the summer social calendar and they have dance parties, they have barbecues, they have beer gardens, they have talks, they have temporary other art events that interact with this object and it changes that space. It changes Mm. the way that the visitors use that space and it changes their experience of that space. So I think these temporary insertions... Um, yeah, are all about changing the rules. And Pavilion in Melbourne is, is a good example of that Absolutely. Because well. mm. it's, it's the building and we know it's the architecture, but it's completely almost demystified and you're asked to go in there and have a good time. Yeah. I think it's also allowing a different type of engagement with architecture. So the M Pavilion is an opportunity for an architect to build something temporary and then it gets moved and the next season something else. So as a citizen, as a visitor, as a um, somebody who is in that environment, you get exposed to these multiple different ideas which are almost iterations on this theme. Mm. And exactly as you say, it allows you just to experience the space. You don't have to live there, you don't have to work there, you don't have to decide whether you like it or not because it's not going to be there in a few months. And then next year, something else happens. And so to me, that's a way to have a conversation about architecture in the city because mm-hmm. you're going, you're exploring the possibilities of what this space could be in an iterative way. Is that what shows like Grand Designs? Uh, it's a very successful show. So 
Is that what that's all about? It's allowing you to just go into the idea of architecture temporarily uh, to test your ideas or to test your responses? The great success of Grand Design is that it is building a vocabulary around design and it is crafting a discourse around architecture that is more than I like it, I don't like it, I want to live there, I don't want to live there. It talks about process, it talks about design and then through implication it talks about the value of design. You get to see in this iterative process week after week, season after season, people testing things and seeing the effect of that test. Um, and I, I think the way that it, it builds vocabulary around design and the value of design is one of the most valuable contributions of shows like that. With all this um, work that you've done, research and talking to people and you know, keeping on talking to people, has this changed uh, for you how you understand the role of an architect? Yes, I think so. The part of my job, which is about advocating for something greater than the specific project that I'm working on, has become much clearer. So to understand that as an architect, you can design things, you can have an aesthetic opinion, you can interpret codes and construction types, that's one part of it. But as an architect, you have to advocate for your values, whether that's values in design, whether that's values for the city, for the built environment, for your client, for the environment. And I think it has really helped me identify very, very clearly how that part of our profession must sit alongside the productions of buildings as part of our profession. You've introduced the idea of an architect being a storyteller using words rather than images. That's a really big shift. Yeah. And I, I think it comes back to this idea of using codified language and codified ways of communicating. And I think by engaging with architectural ideas as narrative and storytelling actually forces you to understand and articulate your ideas in a much clearer way. And I think in my professional experience, it also shows one of the most potent ways to communicate value. So instead of saying, oh, I think this is a great idea because I love it, or I think this is the most beautiful thing, by crafting a narrative, why is it beautiful? Who is it beautiful to? Mm. Why is that important? And to me, the most powerful way to do that is through a narrative form because you can carry a huge amount more complexity around ideas and experience and values through the way that you use this storytelling narrative. And you can carry a lot of people along with the journey as well. I think when you describe yourself as an activist, people always imagine you as contrary to something else, whereas an advocate is about possibilities and change and development rather than my way or the highway kind of thing. What are the challenges for architects in the next 20 years? I think the greatest challenge that we face is to make sure that we've got a seat at the table where the decisions are being made about the future of our city. So in the designing buildings part of the profession of architecture, you have to be reactionary. You, you work to a brief, 
you work with a client, you work within planning constraints, you work within these parameters that are already established. I feel like the biggest opportunity and also the biggest challenge for us as a profession is to make sure that we can have a hand in making those decisions as champions of the kind of cities and kind of spaces that we want to be building for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Imogen. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Jan Ryan there with Imogene Tudor from Sam Crawford Architects who received her Byra Hadley in 2012 and was investigating how to bring architecture and the public closer together. Yeah, I think this issue that Imogene raises about how to make the language of architecture, I think she uses the word plain Mm. um, but still specific is quite an interesting one and you and I have talked about this before in terms of how how architects communicate outside of themselves mm. and so with our with the board's interest which is how do we reach out to the public and mm. connect architects to the consumer i guess that question is is it plain is it about making it more accessible these are the things that interest us it's part of the reason for the podcast right uh, to explore these things yeah i find it interesting also that she talks about our codified languages of drawing you know the thing that we rely on mm. we revel in and we think is a really great tool. Maybe it's holding us back a bit. Well, it's often a source of wonder because so maybe one of the great things is the ability for an architect to do the live drawing thing in front of a client. It's uh, bringing an idea to life. At the same time, there's a whole lot around that, the disciplinary domain, documentation, standards, line weights, things like that that the profession can be interested in that don't make so much sense to yeah. the public. Yeah, yeah. The old razzle-dazzle. You can hear from other Byra scholars in our podcast series in the coming weeks. Jan will be speaking with Hannah Tribe from Tribe Studio, Matt Chan from Scale Architecture, Dr Deborah Deering, the North District Commissioner for the Greater Sydney Commission, and Ben Peake. And maybe by then he will have finished his report following his scholarship last year. Ben's with Carter Williamson Architects. You've been listening to Architecture Insights, brought to you by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board, and I'm Di Snape.